Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 381. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 381 you're listening to. My guest today is producer engineer Ed Stasium, who has worked with the Skull Snaps, Ramones, Talking Heads, Living Color, Smithereens, and many, many others. And I am a huge fan of his work. So I'm very excited that he's here and I can't wait for you to hear that interview. So Ed Stasium coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about inspiring others. Recently, I had a childhood friend of mine, and actually it was the father of a childhood friend of mine, pass away. And this friend's father was very important to me growing up because he really gave me some opportunities as far as you know jobs early on. He also showed me great examples of kindness and generosity. And he also really taught me early on about forgiveness. One of the ways he did that is I was working for his company. And this is when I was a teenager uh, in Southern New Mexico. And I wrecked a van that I was driving for him. And I, you know, did some dumb shit move and, you know, tried to pass somebody on the left in an intersection and ended up hitting them because they were turning left. It was a whole thing. And everybody was okay. Nobody got, you know, radically hurt. But... I was scared to death because I trashed the van. The van ended up in a ditch and it was pretty crazy. I got back to the office after the accident and after everything had settled down, it was the end of the day and he was there waiting for me. And I just was like, oh my God, I'm gonna get fired. This is, this is gonna suck. And I walked in and he goes, are you okay? And I said, yeah. And he said, well, what happened? And I explained and he goes, well, you don't wanna do that again. And I said, no, no, I don't. And he said, okay, well, we'll see you at work tomorrow. And I was stunned. I was absolutely floored that this man was that forgiving and that cool about it. And not to mention all the places that I went with their family, you know, growing up because his son was a a good friend of mine. And, you know, we traveled, we, uh, they, you know, they took us to Disneyland and they took us to South Padre Island and they were just really kind people to not only myself, but my older sister who also had a, uh, a friend her age in the family. So the passing of my our friend's father really hit me this week and it came on the heels of Taylor Hawkins passing. And it of course brought about a sense of uh, mortality, obviously. And it really, you know, it gets you thinking when that stuff happens, you think, wow, you know, I mean, one day you're here and the next day you're not. I, I thought about, you know, all the inspiration that Taylor Hawkins had given a lot of people and I just thought about my friend and his and my my friend's father who will just say my friend you know I was friends with his dad so I was thinking about the inspiration that he gave me the work ethic he kind of instilled in me watching him run his business and turn it into a massive empire obviously I'm not going to tell you who this is because I'd like them to their identities to remain private but great generous people to me and my my older sister growing up. So what does that mean for us in audio? 
What does that mean right here in this rant? Well, what I'm here to suggest subtly, if you will, um, I'm here to suggest that if you can make an impact in a positive way in another audio professional's life, and I don't care if it's somebody who is 10 times more uh, successful than you are or just getting started and in some school or just bought their first four, you know, I don't know. And does anybody buy four tracks anymore? They're bought their first pro tools rig. Anybody who's just beginning, if you can have an impact in their life in a positive way, uh, try to do so. And now, of course, I say this at the age I'm at now, because I know that in the past, you know, I've been a dick to some people in my life. I'm going to completely cop to that. You know, I am not a saint and have definitely showed some bad character in the past by just, you know, the way I've talked to some people. And here, you know, in this day and age and the experiences I've been through have taught me that you just don't treat people like shit. So, and you inspire them like the people I'm talking about, like the inspiration that my friend gave to me and like the inspiration that Taylor Hawkins gave to a lot of people. So just remember, you can be here one day and then you're gone the next. So when you leave, you know, you want to leave behind a feeling in people that, hey, that that person really did me a solid. They helped me out. They inspired me. They did this. They did that. I mean, personally, that's the kind of thing I would like to leave behind when I go. And I hope you do, too, because the world can be far better off if we're all just, you know, trying to inspire each other instead of tearing each other down and spending our time dealing in petty bullshit. So whether it's somebody up and coming, a current peer, somebody who is far ahead of you in the game of audio and any kind of success they may have achieved, try to inspire, try to encourage and do your best to leave people with a great feeling that they were happy that you were in the room so that you'll be welcome in the room the next time. And when you're not around, they're thinking about, you know, who'd be great to bring in this person who inspires us, who does this for us, who helps us be our best or or makes us all feel really good. Try to be that person. Try to be more of that person, of the people that I'm talking about. My friend, Taylor Hawkins, people like that. And if you look at Taylor Hawkins, and if you look at the musicians who were singing his praises, everybody from Paul McCartney to Stuart Copeland to Rush, you know, the list goes on and on and on and on. People really love Taylor Hawkins, and it was clear that he had a positive impact on a lot of people. So be more like Taylor Hawkins, be more like my friend, and try to inspire, try to encourage those around you because being an asshole and being a condescending prick in the world of audio, it's not gonna get you anywhere. Thinking you're the greatest thing since sliced bread and the smartest person in the room is gonna get you nowhere but ridicule behind your back and, and people aren't gonna wanna hang out with you. You know, and there are people out there like that, for sure, that are just, you know, assholes. So don't be an asshole. Be more like Taylor. Be more like my friend and inspire. All right. That's my rant. Thanks for listening. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Evan are two of the nicest people on the planet, easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might've met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. 
you might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I've used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation, and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. All right, let's get to it. Ed Stasium here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Ed, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Matt. I'm a huge fan of your work. I definitely have purchased many of the records that you have worked on. So it's a pleasure to have you here. I always like to ask this because I'd like to find out about the beginnings of people's worlds. And that is, where did you grow up? New Jersey, exit nine. <laughs> Yeah, I'm a, I'm a Jersey boy. Okay. And growing up, what influence did music have on you? Did you have siblings? Where did where did the influence come from? I'm an from? only child. Okay. So there was always music around the house. We had a record player, a web core, played all four speeds, 16, 33 and third, 45 RPM and 78 RPM. And we'd never had one of those transcription discs. I never figured out what that 16... RPM was four when I was a kid, but it was a web core. It was probably like maybe 16 by 16 mono that got played all the time. And my mom and dad would listen to WOR in New York, make believe ballroom, the hit parade. Martin Block was the DJ, I remember. And this is in, you know, early 50s. Mm -hmm. There was music always around. We had a big family especially my father's side, there are lots of cousins and uncles and aunts and nieces and nephews. And they always, there were parties. 
there was always my father made a he was a carpenter and he built a bar in the basement and they would come over i actually have transferred to video early parties down in that basement you know probably mid 50s well my uncle al my uncle ed had the had the eight millimeter cameras and I ended up with all the film somehow years ago, like 30 years ago. I, I received the film from my Aunt Nadine, who passed away last year. And, uh, you know, I had, I had transferred them. When I was living in New York, I transferred them to Beta because they had a Beta deck and then made VHS copies for everybody in the family. And I put a soundtrack. They're silent. Uh, right. Eight millimeters. So I, I did a soundtrack with, you know, Sinatra, Louis Prima. Oh, love Louis Prima. <laughs> the hits of the day the 50s. These films were probably from 54 to 1960, somewhere around there. And I put up the hits of the days on there, the hits that were on the hit parade, Rosemary Clooney, Doris Day, all those great pop artists. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the music was always around and there, there you go. So it was just, uh, the house was filled with music and boy, it, it goes on, you know, I didn't purchase records early on, but my mom did. I remember she even purchased 78s. Mm-hmm. I remember come, her coming home with Harry Belafonte's Deo, which I loved. And there's a reverb on it and the bongos, you know, it was really a cool, cool sound. I do remember her coming home and uh, being really happy that she went to the record store and got, uh, and it was on 78, which I still have that 78. But I got inherited my parents' collections of all different 78s and 33 RPM. Were you influenced to pick up an instrument at some point? I started with piano. Mm. My family were both coal mining families. Mm. We always went back to Pennsylvania. My dad came from a coal mining family as my mom's, my mom's dad, both my maternal and paternal grandparents were coal miners. Mm. My dad's father was killed. And first he lost his left hand in an accident and had a hook hand. My grandfather had a hook hand and he was killed in a coal mining accident when my father was 12. He had to quit school and go work in the coal mines at age 12, which is 1923 to support the family. Yeah. He was the oldest boy and he had four sisters and three brothers and took care of them. And eventually, you know, got the three brothers through college somehow back in the day. But we used to go to Einan. That's where the town that both of my parents came from. It was outside of Scranton, Dixon City, Carbondale, big coal mining. They had those slag heaps. They would glow and smoke at night. Horrible stuff. Wow. Huge, like mountains on the way. And I used to be fascinated when I was a kid. And they would glow from the spontaneous combustion of all the slag. They'd be glowing and smoking. And I thought that was so cool. Terrible pollution, I'm sure. (laughs) I I used to go play in that shit when I was younger. (laughs) So we would go often to Ion, Pennsylvania to visit relatives. And there was a, a hangout at a friend's home. And his friend was named Alan Carpinetti. And Alan Carpinetti built this extension onto their home, which was an old home. It was a clubhouse. It was a, it was a man cave. They had a pool table in there, a record player, a coal-fired stove for heat, and a bar. It was attached to the house by a like a six-foot hallway that extended from the main house to the man cave. And in this hallway that adjoined the main house and the man cave was a piano, an old piano. And I don't remember ever seeing a piano before that. I must have been six. And I was just messing around with it. And Alan Carpinetti came over to me and showed me how to play chopsticks. Mm. 
and I, I did it right away. I was like, oh, I was real proud of myself. You know, I could play chopsticks. I had good time. It was, you know, I was playing it with him. He's there. Oh, very good. Blah, blah, blah. I got interested in piano. And during the next year, I started taking piano lessons at um, Rafino and DeSorbo Music Studios in Dinellon, New Jersey, where all the kids took their lessons. It was a dance and music studio. Hmm. And I started taking piano lessons because I was interested in it. We received the piano because my lovely Aunt Nadine, may she rest in peace, she belonged to a church in the town of Donnell, New Jersey, that was getting a new piano, knew that I was interested in getting piano lessons, but we did have a piano at home. And so my parents paid for the, I, I believe what happened, I was young, I was seven. They paid for the moving expenses and got this old piano from the church while they got their new one. And I remember uh, they hired a tuner to come in and tune it up and Voila, I started taking piano lessons and probably only lasted till I was like nine years old or 10, somewhere around there. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I learned how to read music, which I, I can't read nothing today. I have no idea what the notes are. I, I just don't know. It's all left me. It's a long time ago. So you left the piano behind eventually. I left the piano behind. I used to take, you know, once a week, Thursday nights, seven o'clock piano lesson every week for three years. We had concerts, little uh, recitals, they called them. Always paired me up on a duet with a girl, which was nice because I liked the girls. Yeah, so <laughs> even at that young age, yes. So I did start off with uh, the piano. What about your teenage years? Did you transition from the piano to another instrument? I transitioned from liking classical music and pop music to rock and roll mm. at the age of 10 when, again, my aunt Nadine interjected another influence in my life, which was a, a transistor radio. Mm. My own transistor radio for my 10th birthday. And I started going around the dial. There were three stations in New York at that time, music stations, mm -hmm. top 40 stations. WABC, which became the one that I listened to all the time. There's WMCA, the WMCA Good Guys. And there was PIX 1010. And I started listening to the radio and to the top 40 stuff that got me interested in the pop music. So I, I got interested in the rock and roll. And then my dad worked for Western Electric. He was in a, um, a carpool with a bunch of guys. I remember Roy Kerbo's name because he had a New Year's Eve party. I'm pretty sure it was 59 going to 60. And this cat brought a tape recorder. They're playing music on the tape recorder, which I had never seen before. And I was just like, what is this? We only had that green webcore record player at home. Right. So I, I'm looking at this uh, tape recorder going, what is this? This is so cool. And the fellow who owned it saw me looking at it this 10-year-old kid, and said, yeah, you, are you interested in this machine? It's a tape recorder, explained it to me. He took off the reel that was playing, and he puts up a blank tape, and he records my voice on it, and he played it back for me. I'm there, oh, shit, what is this? <laughs> it, was it was really enlightening, so I became obsessed with the tape recorder. My parents were always very supportive of, even though they're both working class and weren't making a lot of dough, they always got me a nice Christmas present and a birthday present. And for Christmas the following year of 1960, I said, I, I wanted a tape recorder. And they came through. They came through with a small, battery-powered, Japanese-made tape recorder with a little crystal microphone, a little earpiece, and three-inch reels. And I wore those batteries out real quick. There was one store in town in Dunellen that was always open on Christmas, the town pharmacy. And my dad had to run there a couple of times, get batteries for me. And for the audience, I mean, we're not talking about cassette. This predates cassette. Oh, yeah. Reel to reel. Yeah. Yeah. Reel to reel. Uh, three inch reels. Three inch reels. Right. Yeah. 
mono. It had a magnet for the erase head. <laughs> I remember that. It totally had a magnet. You want to erase it? Because if you didn't do that, you could do sound on sound, which I figured out later on. And for the next Christmas, I wanted an electric tape recorder. So I got a, a Japanese brand with a magic eye for a VU, had a nice microphone and had quarter inch jacks for the microphone. And there was also this quarter inch jack with alligator clips on the other end. And they're like, what's this? And I figured somehow figured out somebody told me that you can hook it up to a radio if you put it on the wires of the speaker cable and directly record it into your tape recorder. Oh, wow. So it was sound better instead of using the mic. So I took the back off my transistor radio. I had taken the back off because you had, you had to do that to uh, put the battery in. Mm -hmm. And I hooked it up to the tape recorder and it was like hi-fi. Wow. It was almost hi-fi. That was great. I figured out I made mixtapes off the radio to bring to and I brought them to the school dances. I was at in a Catholic grammar school. I think I still have one of those mixtapes somewhere of the hits of the day. It's like Bristol Stomp and South Street by the Orlans and Don't Make Me Over. Boy, what great memories they were. I used to wait until the DJ would finish and then put it in record and so it wouldn't be a DJ on the mixtape. And you would bring these tapes to your dances? Well, the, the whole tape recorder. It was a portable tape recorder. Okay. So I'd bring it to the, you know, sock hop. I mean, they're, they're in the classroom. Right. So it was just like entertainment. After I got that, uh, I started collecting 45s. Mm -hmm. And I became like the local DJ. Not that I DJ, but if there was a party, I'd bring my box of records. I still have that original box. So I would make, make up plays, like funny phone calls, you know, fake phone calls. Hey, <laughs> hey, is your refrigerator running? Well, well yeah, well, you better go catch it and that kind of stuff. <laughs> and I used to record that shit. I, I figured out that you could, clip onto the telephone as well with that those with the alligator clips the alligator clips and there was a phone box in the basement which i could tap onto as well wow. and you could record both sides of the conversation with that thing it was cool <laughs> this is really where the early recording started right here yeah 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 off the radio mixtapes and a friend of mine huey murray a guy lived across the street from him and Huey called me up and says, hey, this guy, Wayne DeRose, wants to know if you can record him playing guitar. I was probably 10, 11 years old, somewhere around there. Mind you, this is all before the British invasion. Mm -hmm. This is like 1960. I mean, the, the guys were in Hamburg, but I didn't know that. What right. did I know? <laughs> I like how you say the guys, and, and I know, we all know what you're talking about. Yeah, of course. They were at the Star Club. Yeah. So Wayne DeRose came over, and he brought a reel of tape, and I recorded like five songs with the cat. And he was really good. And he had a Gretsch Country Gentleman. I remember that. And I, that's when I, the spark hit me that, oh, my God, I like the guitar. There were some instrumental songs that I really liked. Walk Don't Run by The Ventures, Perfidia by The Ventures, Rambunctious by The Ventures, uh, Apache by Joden Ingman. So for the next Christmas, I asked for a guitar. And I got an acoustic K guitar with, you know, the strings are about a half inch off of the neck. But oh, yeah, try hard. I didn't know how to tune it, didn't know anything. I somehow, I don't know how, but I tuned it to an open E chord. I remember doing that. And I remember trying to play along with Let There Be Drums, the Sandy Nelson song. Do you know the tune? I don't know the tune. It was a little progression, one, three, five kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And I found that years later, working at American Recorders, Richard Podler's place, where he produced Three Dog Night and all the Steppenwolf stuff. Mm. But Richard Podler wrote that 
freaking song. And I, and I didn't know this. And I, I was up at the studio and there was like a gold record for Let There Be Drums and a BMI award. He wrote it. I told him that was the first song I learned. And I said, I played it. And I think I played it in like an open E chord. And he said, I did the same thing. That's how I played that. It was with open E. It was, check it out. <laughs> and a couple of my early albums on that web core were one Sandy Nelson record called Let There Be Drums, which I still have in my pile over here. Yeah. Really cool stuff. So from there, it moves on. Yeah. I'm going to jump around a little bit just so we don't run out of time. And I want to get through a lot of your journey. You eventually were fronting a band called Brandywine. Eventually. Eventually. Yes. I mean, we skipped a whole bunch of my high school years, which you wanted to get to. You know, for my birthday, when I was a sophomore in high school, it's 1965, I saved up enough money over the summer working at a grocery store to pay for half of a Strat. The big guitar was a Stratocaster when I was in high school. Yeah. My parents paid for half of that Strat. And I paid for the other half. It was a Seafoam Green. The only one, I wanted a Sunburst, but it was only mm. the only one left at Rondo Music on Route 22 in Union, New Jersey. And I got a Seafoam Green. That's a whole other story as well. When I saw Rocky on the Magical Mystery Tour booklet, I decided to um, paint my Stratocaster in 1968. Over that- Over the Seafoam Green? Over that very, very rare Seafoam Green oh. 63 Stratocaster. Oh, Ed. It's in a museum now. It's, it's in good hands. Okay. Johnny played that guitar on a lot of Ramones records, and I played like the solo on Sedated. I played a lot of that guitar on Ramones as well. And they, they wanted a Fender a original Stratocaster with some provenance. So they got it. It's all good. It was, it was beat up. Trust me, it was beat to okay. shit. Okay. Okay. It wasn't in shape. It, it found its place in time and history. It did. It did. Yes. So, you know, all through high school and bands, all sorts of bands. And eventually I went to art school. I went to the School of Visual Arts in New York City and got into a band via a friend of mine, Michael Bonagura, who's by five years younger than I. And he would come rehearse across the street in Sammy DeSalvo's house. And he would come and watch us. And I taught the guy how to play his first chords. And then years later, I played in a couple of bands with him. And then he went off to college and I ended up um, stay, sticking with the drummer whose name was Chip Miles. So I'm still great friends with. He lives in, you know, he's from Jersey. Of course, he would be from Jersey as of well. Of course, right. And that morphed into from a couple different bands into the London Fog, which band I was in, morphed into another band called The Cartoon, which we kept the name Cartoon, but then had to change it once there was a band called Cartoon on Swan Song that Jimmy Page produced. Mm. But yeah, so I ended up ultimately. We ended up being Brandywine and got a record deal with Brunswick Records. And you were fronting the band, right? I wasn't really front. I was a guitar player. Okay. We, we swapped. I sang some stuff. Lenny Shavi, the bass player. He was a great, he's, I think he still is a good singer. He had a great voice. He was really good. He's really in tune. Great inflections. Albert Miller was the keyboard player. We had a B3 with Leslie. That's a, always a joy to put into a van, let me tell you. Uh, you think drummers have it hard? Yeah, seriously. We went into the studio. We got to deal with Richie Havens. Richie Havens had a label mm -hmm. called Stormy Forest. I think it was distributed by MGM. And we didn't do a record, but we went into Media Sound, which years later, I would end up doing a bunch of work there. We went to Media Sound, just started. Joel and John, the owners of Media Sound, were the cats that put up the money for Woodstock. I don't know if you knew that. Whoa. Uh, John, Joel Roseman and John, if you, if you Google the... Uh, you know, Woodstock, their names are 
I'm sure it'd be prominently mentioned. Mm-hmm. They put up the money for Woodstock. And then after Woodstock, they're going to do, well, what are we going to do now? And they built Media Sound in New York City in an old church, fantastic studio. Mm-hmm. And Richie had a, a, a connection with them. And we were signed a producer. God knows what happened to him. And we went in for like three days, recorded four or five songs. And lo and behold, the engineer on that, this is November 3rd, 1970. The engineer on that was Bob Margoloff. Oh, right. Okay. Bob Margoloff. He and Malcolm Cecil were early purveyors of the Moog synthesizer. And they had a record called Tonto's Expanding Headband. Hmm. But Bob was, he took over the session. This guy was just like smoking weed and, you know, not just go, sitting there going, yeah, yeah. And Bob's like, that's got to be better. You got to sing this better. It's a, come on, try the different thing. You know, he was doing his production thing. And right after we did those demos, Bob could tell a story way better than I could. But Stevie Wonder ended up knocking on his door in Greenwich Village, like, like seven o'clock on a Sunday morning with his handler and the Tonto's expanding headband record under his arm. Says, are you Bob Margoloff? I want to work with you. And that's when they started working with Stevie Wonder, Malcolm and Bob, starting with Talking Book, Inner Visions, mm-hmm. and the record after that. I forget what it is, but they did this like series of remarkable records with Stevie Wonder. What was your perspective on the studio? Were you just enamored? I mean, coming up from your transistor radio and your recorders at Christmas time, I mean, was this studio experience monumental for you? Absolutely. Absolutely. It was my dream. But I, I, mind you, I wanted to be a rock star at that time. I never thought of being an engineer hmm. or, for that matter, a producer. Never entered my mind. Although I was really handy at, at this time, I had rigged up two stereo tape recorders to overdub back and forth with. Figured that out on my own. Everything I've done is pretty much on my own. I didn't hit the schools. It's just kind of instinctive for me. And it's kind of a metamorphosis kind of vibe. That's how I learned yeah, it was fantastic going into this studio. It was like in Manhattan, 311 West 57th Street. And it was in an old church that it was massive. That room was fantastic. And it was done on, on 12 track. 12 track. Scully made a one inch machine that was a 12 track. I wish I had those masters. When I started doing Ramones and stuff there, when I started going to Media Sound for the first time in like 72 with Tony Bon Jovi, I bet those tapes were still in the vault down there. Mm. Little did I, I didn't even think of, you know. Good luck finding a machine to play them on, though. Oh, well, I'm sure that a buddy of mine that does that stuff, Brian, up in L.A., he has every machine possible. So he, yeah. he would find that Is stuff. Is that Brian, so, Brian Kihu? Yes, exactly. Yeah. The writer of the Beatles book. Yeah, the big. The, the big the, one that looks like a reel of two inch. Yes. Yeah, it's amazing. I have that. Yeah, it's great. What I'm curious about is, what point in your time did you make a conscious decision to not be a rock star and to start being an engineer? I think a series of events happened. So I'm still, I'm still in the band. We get an apartment in North Plainfield, New Jersey. We're playing and we get a record deal with Barry Landers and this guy, Nat Tarnapol, his dad founded Brunswick Records and got us a, a deal, sight unseen. Hmm. Yeah, he's like, yeah, I got it. I have a band. Well, I'll sign him. Okay. I'll bring him to the studio. I have a studio in Chicago. So the bass player, Lenny, couldn't make it. So I ended up playing bass on that Brandywine record that you might have, may or may not have seen or heard. We drove to Chicago in an old Plymouth with all our gear, drums, guitar amp, guitars, 
we didn't need to bring a keyboard. They had, you know, they had keyboards at the studio. And this is the moment that I thought, man, this would be really cool to do. We went to the studio and started recording, and Bruce Swedeen was the engineer. Whoa. I work with Margoloff and Bruce Swedeen, and Bruce was very cooperative with my nosy questions about recording. And there was an Ampex 16, MM1000 16 track there, and I just got, got interested in it, you know? And lo and behold, the following summer, I got fired from my... I started to work at Ampeg, and I was late all the time. I ended up not going in. I got fired. We had to move out of the apartment because I couldn't afford it. I'm in my parents' bed, basically in my parents' house in the basement. And we took over one of the bedrooms, Debbie, my first wife, and a young son, Jason. He was born in October 1971. And no job. And for some reason, Michael Bonagura comes into my life again because he lived in the neighborhood. And I bump into Mike Bonagura. And he says, hey, Eddie. Let's start a band. What are you doing? Let's, let's start another band. His dad was an English professor at a university called Alma White College in Zarephath, New Jersey. And Tony Camello was the music professor there. So Michael's like, Eddie, come on. My dad knows this guy, Tony Camello. He has an engineer named Tony Bon Jovi. And they're building, he's building a studio in his house. This is the summer of 72. That was the moment where... Maybe, I, I don't know, maybe this can happen. Started another band with Michael. Tony would never return his calls, but eventually he did. And we started going down to the studio and it wasn't done. It was, wasn't finished. They acquired all this equipment from a studio in Philadelphia, an Ampex 16 track, a bunch of microphones, a Langevin console. And Tony Bon Jovi, he had this guy wire up a monitor section. And it was just all laying over the place. I was collecting unemployment mm. and living in my parents' basement. And I just started hanging out at the studio, helping out wiring stuff, you know, wiring a patch bay, made a meter bridge that never worked. <laughs> <laughs> wiring up the headphone boxes, uh, building a drum booth, putting the floor in, helping put the glass in and, and just started helping out. Tony uh, Bon Jovi asked me if I wanted to go into media sound one day with him to see how it really went down. And I went in with him and I helped him out and he went out to get a sandwich and left me. It was a cool in the gang session, oh, early, wow. early cool in the gang. Before the hits, I was nervous. I had the hiccups. The guys were really friendly. They're giving me all the typical recommendations for hiccup cures, holding your breath, drinking a glass of water upside down, (laughs) putting a teaspoon of sugar on your tongue, all of the above. And Tony ended up going out to get a sandwich, so he said, and and he left for like two and a half hours and left me there. Sink or swim, and I swam. And then two weeks later, him and Tony Camella had an argument, and I didn't see him again until like 1975. Right. And that's when I saw him. And I ended up just sitting in the engineer's chair and figuring shit out and just picked up on it by osmosis. And were you, you started to make money? I was collecting unemployment at first. And then the unemployment ran out. And I said, Tony, I need to make money to do this. He said, oh, okay. And I started giving like 150 a week or something off the books. Yeah. Yeah. And so the engineer is born. The engineer is born. And the producer, producer was born when I was in high school, really. I never realized it, but... I was in bands and I was the guy in the band who I had a tape recorder, I had a record player and a guitar, and I would learn the songs, write down the lyrics and then teach all the other guys that stuff. So my production skills were honed since I was a teenager, really. I didn't realize what I was doing, but when somebody would fuck up, I'd say, that's not right. That's not the right chord. I have a couple of tapes with arguments going on between like the bass player and the guitar player. And going, you fucking, you fucked that up. How can you fuck that up? You know, they're yelling. And they, they got into a fist fight and stuff. It was funny. Unbelievable shit. It's like the, the Trogs tapes. 
Oh, I love those. They're so great. <laughs> well, here you are. Tony leaves. You're left in charge of the session. You swim, as you say. And did you at some point just say, hey, this is working. I should just keep doing this. I just I just kept doing it. I didn't even think about it. Yeah, I've never put any thought into my career. I put a lot of hope into it, but I never put any thought into it. Say, oh, I'm going to be an engineer. Oh, I'm going to be a producer. Just honestly, it's all osmosis. It all happened. I didn't plan on anything. There's no planning. There is no planning in my career at all. None whatsoever. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Samply.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Samply.app. Check it out. I've been at the right place at the right time many times, and I've been very lucky. I was going to say, so... Looking back at that career, you've done tons of records, but I mean, the records that I first started to see your name on that I was like, oh my God, these records, the way they sound, like the smithereens and living color. And I know that there was tons of records even before those, but I mean, when you look back on some of this stuff and you're trying to analyze it, what do you think you did that made it all work so well? As I say to many of my friends and Many of my girlfriends, I don't analyze shit. Mm. I don't know. I just, I go with the flow. I really do. I can't analyze it. I don't know. I don't know what happened. And why do you, why do you think people kept calling you back for, for gigs? Because I'm a nice guy and I'm from New Jersey. I don't know. <laughs> I don't, I don't, honestly, I don't know. I don't have an answer for you. I don't. I've just been, again, right place, right time. Very lucky. Uh-huh. Because of Tony Bon Jovi, I got hooked up with the Ramones because I was I quit Camelos, went to the studio Morin Heights in Canada. I saw an ad in the back of DB magazine at an AES convention mm. in 1975. Engineer wanted, and I knew they had a Trident console up there, the first one in North America, one of 13. And I love that. Con- I love the shit coming out of Trident, the way it sounded, you know, Hey Jude, all the Bowie stuff, Queen stuff, uh, Carly Simon stuff, uh, Harry Nielsen, all that, those records that were done at Trident just sound remarkable, no matter who the producer was. And so I went up there, got a gig. I befriended a guy named uh, 
Alan Schwartzberg, drummer, New York drummer. Mm. Great guy, great drummer, played on tons of shit. And uh, Alan called me up and asked me to come down to work on a, a telethon uh, this, that Geraldo Rivera was doing for the benefit for this mentally handicapped children called one-on-one. He did an expose in the place. And at this, I, I was doing audio consulting. Mm-hmm. I would stand behind the union guy and go, that needs more top on the snare. And he'd be like, (laughs) (laughs) anyway, I'm there. And I run to Tony Bon Jovi first time since like 1972. Right. Tony says, Eddie, what are you doing? Hey, me and Bob Walters, we're going to build a new studio in town. He's like, what are you doing? Are you still, what are you, I tell him I was in Canada. I was thinking of leaving. He says, well, we're going to build a new studio. Why don't you come down and be chief engineer? So that started to be power station. Boom. Wow. That's being at the right place at the right time. It just always happens. I'm very, very lucky. I, I have no, no other way of putting it. I really don't. You know, I'm just turning knobs. I don't know anything. I have no idea what goes on under. I can wire stuff, mm-hmm. make put stuff into a patch bag and put cords together and wire a stereo. But I have no idea what's going on inside of there. I have no electronic knowledge whatsoever. So, you know, bumping into Tony was strictly by chance and start a power station. And then <laughs> Margolov comes back in my life with a band called Riff Raff that got a deal with Island Records. And, you know, Tony put me on those early Ramones records on Leave Home mm-hmm. and Rocket to Russia. And we did Leave Home at a place called Sundragon Studios, a small 16-track jingle place. The late Ned Lieben owned it with a part of his Michael Ewing. Ned had a band called Riff Raff. Bob Margolov was going to produce, but they wanted me to engineer. And I went to Bob Walters, who was managing Power Station. And we got the room running. You know, we had done some work there. The room was just finished. The A room was just... We worked in the A room at night, mixing Rocket to Russia with the Ramones while they were building the dome outside. And as soon as the dome was finished, Margolov and I, you know, we wanted to record there. But Bob Walters would not lock out the place. He was just old school, three-hour sessions. You can't lock it out. And um, ended up going to Media Sound, and I ended up leaving Power Station. Like three weeks later, Springsteen moved in to do the river for a year and a half, whatever they took, <laughs> with, with Neil Dorsman. It's all good. And, you know, I was the only engineer there. Bobby Clearmount was still at Media. He came to the meetings. He was planning to be part of the team. He was at the design meetings for Power Station. It was myself, Bon Jovi, Bobby Clearmount, and Ed Evans, the technical guy, and Bob Walters. So it was just, again, chance. I just I ended up going... In November of 1977, I left Power Station to pursue a solo career, <laughs> to, go, to go independent. Right. Just, you know, things are just really right place, right time. A, a prime example of this, which concerns Vernon Reed and Living Color. Mm-hmm. By chance, my friend Dave Jordan recommended me for the Peter Wolf record. I was living in L.A. Then I decided to move to Manhattan during the Peter Wolf sessions and stay there. And then from that, Dave Jordan also recommended me for the Jagger solo record that I did. So just knowing Dave and the little time I did in L.A. between 81 and 83, somehow Jagger and Jeff Beck were mixing Primitive Cool at Right Track in New York. Somebody gave them a tip about Living Color, and Mick and Jeff Beck went out to see them at CBGB's. And uh, Mick comes back and Tells me, yeah, I'm going to do demos. And, you know, we ended up, ended up Ronnie St. Germain did recorded the demos with those guys. I think Ronnie was friends with Vernon. Mm-hmm. I was working, so I couldn't do it. So Ronnie did the demos with Living Color, two songs. 
And, uh, you know, I was mixing the Mick album. You know, we were hanging out. I met all the guys. We got on really well. And I wasn't working with them. We just see each other in the hallway and I pop in. Mick was going back and forth while he was producing Which Way to America and Glamour Boys. Mick produced those hmm. on the first Living Color record on Vivid. And uh, okay, I think nothing. I've finished that. I'm doing other projects. I'm working at Right Track all the time doing stuff. And one day, Right Track was uh, 168 West 48th Street, right on Music Row where Manny's was, Sam Ash, We Buy Guitars, all those places, right there. It was literally next door to uh, Sam Ash and Manny's. You'd always see people, musicians, people, you know, hanging out. This is a real being at the right place at the right time kind of thing. I walk out of Right Track after doing a session in the daytime, and who's there? There's Vernon. Hey, how you doing? Hugs, hugs. You know, how you doing? What's going on? And he says, hey, man, we're we got a record deal with Epic, and we were talking about producers, and your name came up. I'm there, oh, wow, that'd be cool. He said, yeah, can we get together at some point? I said, yeah, let's get together. So, and they were talking to some, they were talking like Phil Ramone and Gary Katz and all these like heavy hitters. Yeah. Tom Werman, Ted Templeman. Ted Templeman, wow. Yeah, they were talking to these cat, all these cats, because he mentioned all these people. And I'm there, yeah, well, yeah, wow. And I'm thinking to myself, well, that's good company. How did I rate to be in that list? Mm-hmm. So, okay, this is like a Tuesday. I said, well, um, you know, Thursday, why don't you come over? And uh, Vernon's a pescatarian, so I said, I'll cook up some fish. We had a decent apartment on the Upper West Side and had a little four-by-four little balcony in the back and i had a little hibachi back there you know i used to cook because i'm always been i've always been a griller my dad was a griller and i still grill constantly so i invite vernon to come over we were very close to tower records so i used to walk there constantly and this is when cds were just hitting the market all the you know the people were reissuing older records and i would go in there and you know pick up cds for the day what you know records that i liked i wanted to get on cd and I picked up a couple and I'm walking back to 78th Street on Amsterdam Avenue. And this old dude kind of looks like he's down in his luck and he's selling his wares, mm-hmm. his clothes, this and records. Oh, shit. He has records. I always I'm a, I'm a collector, kind of. Well, you can tell I have things. I have a few records in the back. Oh, of I can here. see that. Yeah. I always look through the records and I'm looking through and I see this record. I'll show it to you. I have it right here. It's called The Skull Snaps. Three-piece. Very, very popular in the hip-hop world. Sampled. A drum beat on this has been sampled over 600 times. Huh. So, I'm there. Oh, my God. I never had the record. This is a record that I did in 1973. Oh. This and another cat called Sir Edward were the first two things that I did. And this guy who's down on his luck is selling this record that he's you selling, He was on. selling a whole shit ton of records. And I just saw this and I stopped and I, my, you know, my jaw dropped. I was, this is, you know, 1986. I did the record in 73 and um, it's in good shape too. Okay. So I picked this up. I'm stoked. He, he wanted a dollar. Each, I just gave him a $20 bill. said, man, this is the best. You know, I, I said, this is an early record. I love this record. Thank you so much. Went home. So I just put it, I always have a little pile of records that I'm listening to in front of the collection. And I put it there. And this is the day that Vernon's coming over for dinner. Vernon comes over, we're chatting, hanging out, and getting ready to cook. And I say, oh, you got to hear this story this ha- that happened. And I, say, I pick up the Skull Snaps record. I say, I, fa- I did this record. And he went, the Skull Snaps? I learned how to play guitar listening to that record. And I was like, what? Seriously? And he just like grabbed me and gave me the biggest hug. And I think that cinched the deal for me doing Living Color. There was no going back. It was like, this is the guy. 
He recorded the Skull Snaps. I learned how to play guitar by doing that record. And you are the, now the man. Like two days later, they called me and said, you're going to do the record. Wow. Interesting. Coincidence. Being at the right place, right time, and walking past a guy that's selling these fucking records. The very record that you need to cinch the deal. Yeah. Wow. The universe works in a, in a strange way. I'm, I'm blessed. Wh- whoever's watching over me, she, he, it, whatever. And the fact that, I mean, Vernon learned how to play with this. So this had an emotional connection for him. And immediately that cinched the deal. That's amazing. Doesn't matter. Yeah. I mean, Ted Templeman. I mean, come on. Right? <laughs> Phil Ramone. Yeah, Gary, Phil Ramone. Cats, all the fit. Right. Uh, but, you know, you know, I mean, Ed, that record sounds great. It's such a, like a, I don't know. I, I could go on and on about it, but. They're great players. It's just yeah. such a great record. It was kind of innovative in, in what they were doing as well. And they pushed me. They pushed me to get it to sound. You know, just, I remember doing the kick drum on Living Color and the whole thing, a cult of personality. Yeah. And Bernie's like, you got to make it explode. All right. I, I, I don't normally ask questions like this, but whose idea was it to put the intro with uh, Kennedy? Okay. No, that's not, that's or, uh, Malcolm X. Right, right. Not Kennedy. No, no, Ken- Kennedy's in there. And that's, that's another little interesting story about Kennedy. But first we'll go to Malcolm X. I don't know who, who actually came up with it. Probably Vernon. I never even thought about asking him who came up with that idea. But originally, they wanted MLK doing free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, we are free at last. They wanted Martin Luther King. But Coretta, the widow, would not grant permission to do it. And so on the master reel, there's actually, it's still on there. But we couldn't use it, so we put on... Put on Malcolm. Malcolm X, yeah. But Kennedy's in the end of the... Yeah, he's in the break. Ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. Ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. And we've tried to put it in at normal speed. And it wouldn't, it, it just wouldn't fit. Right. So we used a harmonizer. Oh. We put it on a tape, put it at various speeds, sped it up, and then pitched it down so it sounded like the same pitch of uh, JFK, but it was sped up mm-hmm. with a, a VSO on a quarter inch yeah. or half inch was. Yeah. Let me ask you a, a question that I doubt you, you get asked very much. You talk about how you're just twisting knobs and, you don't really know what's going on underneath there. Nope. What about getting a handle on the business so that you could survive? Did did you have a manager? Did were you good with money? How did you advocate? <laughs> good with money? That's a joke. <laughs> How did you advocate for yourself as a producer? Okay, it's a good question, and I didn't know that producers received royalties. I had no idea. Right before I'm making Road to Ruin in 1978, I had been doing a lot of work at Media Sound. The manager, after Bob Walters left, this woman named Susan Planer, RIP Susan, I love you. I always like go up to the office and chat with people, have a coffee. And Susan said to me, right before we're going in to do Road to Ruin, you're getting royalties on these uh, projects you're doing, aren't you? And I went, what? What royalties? And she said, you should be getting royalties. Do you know that producers get royalties? And I said, no, I had no idea. Hmm. I was just, I was a kid from New Jersey. I never studied business. I don't know these things. So she said, you need to get an attorney and you need to get points on these records that you're doing. So because of Susan, 
I started getting points on the records you know, pr- that I was producing. Yeah. Which fortunately you got points on the Living Color record and the yes, the Smithereens and absolutely yes. Okay, good. Living Color and all the all Ramones after that. Even the Phil Spector record that I just played guitar on end of the century, I was able to sneak a point out of that, which is really cool. When uh, when I was in my early twenties, I was in a band called the Sextants, S E X T A N T S, and we were signed to this record label called Imago Records. Well. I know Imago, the Baby Animals record I did is on Imago. Exactly. And that's where I was going with that. So we played a show or two with the Baby Animals, and I noted that their first record... Mike Chapman did. Mike Chapman did, right. Of course, those who know the record by The Knack, My Sharona, Mike Chapman did that, and Pat Benatar. and All the sweet records. Oh, really? I didn't realize that. Okay. But you did the next one with Baby Animals. Great, great players. Oh, there, it was a, what a great record. Imago didn't handle it. No. Handle anything well, honestly. Yeah. Tell me about it. I know firsthand. Kate, I love Kate Hyman. Kate, Kate's a great gal, but just whatever. It just didn't happen. Yeah. Big disappointment. And, you know, they loved the Living Color record that I did. The records and Smithereens as well. Yeah. So they, they found me somehow. They wanted to work with me. They just loved those records. And I, I actually, I was working on a guy named Tommy Conwell. For uh, CBS, the record never came out. I heard they wanted to meet with me in person. Mm. They flew me to Australia for a day. <laughs> it was funny. Well, for a day, didn't it take a day to get there? Yeah, yeah. No, it, well, I think, <laughs> how did that work? I don't know how it worked, but I ended up getting there. We met, went to the rehearsal studio, went to dinner. Then I left the next morning. Oh, my God. <laughs> Actually, we even rehearsed the next morning really early. And I had an early flight, like a 10 o'clock flight. We rehearsed at 8 or something like that. Then I went to the airport. And uh, the coolest thing was uh, I left at 11 a.m. in Australia and got back at 10 a.m. the same day. Time travel. It was yeah, fun. you time traveled. That's exactly what you did. Uh, yeah. You know, you've mentioned a few places that you've lived, and I've looked up, you know, I don't know if the information's accurate, but on Wikipedia, they talk about a few places you've lived. Uh, what determines for your career? I mean, I'm assuming you take your career in mind when you move to a place. You know, you've lived in the big places, Los Angeles, New York. So now you live, you live outside of San Diego, I think it's right. Yeah, it's- I'm in North County, San Diego. I'm about a half hour out of, the, out of the city. Okay. And you mentioned Canada earlier. Yeah, I went up to Canada. Yeah, I went, to, went from New Jersey to Canada, back to New Jersey, to L.A., from L.A. to Manhattan, then from Manhattan to, to Sherman Oaks to L.A. again, then from... Sherman Oaks to Durango, Colorado for 11 years. Right, right. Yeah, Colorado. And then from uh, Durango, Colorado to here. And all the places that you've lived, has one been more conducive to a career than any others? New York and L.A. Okay. Yeah. As a matter of fact, when those busy years, like 86 to 95, I kept the place in Manhattan and had the house in, in Sherman Oaks. Oh, wow. And I would go back and forth a lot. With my kitty cat, who got lost once. Fucking Pan Am lost Mr. Basil. Basil, Mr. Basil the Cat, Esquire. Wow, the days when Pan Am was actually an airline. Yeah, they were still an airline, yes, indeed. Before Pan Am 103. You know, I was supposed to be on that flight, on the Lockerbie flight. You were? Yeah. Wow. 
Yeah, we were supposed to get on it. We were packed, ready to go, but I couldn't couldn't finish the project. Didn't have the time. I was there. We were still working. And when my wife called up and screaming on the phone, going, oh, my God, you're still there. I said, yeah, why? Why? What do you mean? I told you I was going to try to get on the plane, but we didn't. I was with my engineer, Paul Hammingson, my assistant. He used to work, worked all those records with me, all the living color, smithereens. And he, we were both in, in England working on a project with a band called The Muscle Shoal for Virgin. It was his daughter's first birthday. So he was pissed off that we didn't get on the plane. But he was no longer pissed off once we found out that it fucking blew up and crashed. Right. And, and just, I mean, for my younger audience, Pan Am Flight 103, it was over Lockerbie, Scotland. Lockerbie, Scotland and I believe it was the Libyans that they... Yeah, it was a, it was a bomb in a cassette deck. Guy, a guy had given his girlfriend to bring on the plane with him. Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, they let him go several years ago. Yeah. I think he had cancer or something. And... Exactly. Yes. I did hear about that. That's another story unto itself, honestly. Working with this band, we, we cut the backing tracks at Rockfield Studios in Wales. Uh-huh. And then did the overdubs at Comfort's Place. But we did the tracks, had a really good first day. And the owner of Rockfield... Ah, I forgot his name. Kingsley. Kingsley Ward. <laughs> Very proper, old British hippie. Start at Rockfield way back in the day. A lot of history there. We tracked it there. And of course, you know, there's a regular setup, two Studer, 800s. And I brought my editing block. And I did a lot of slicing and dicing. Still do. But it's in Pro Tools now. It's easier <laughs> instead of cutting the tape. Yeah, you don't cut your fingers in Pro Tools. No, I don't cut your fingers anymore. And uh, I still have my splicing block, though. I should have it bronzed. Anyway, so Kingsley Ward takes us out to dinner, and the drummer gets shit-faced. In the gutter, drunk. He actually fell in the gutter walking out of the restaurant. Couldn't play for worth a dime on the next day. We had to leave. So we had two more songs to do, and I ended up having to edit the two songs together, which took up an extra day at Comfort's Place. And it was a 3M machine with a closed loop. Really tough to edit on. Only one machine. So I used to have to rewind and bring another reel up and listen and make notes and cut. And, and I forgot my own splicing block, which I love, at Rockfield. So they, they had one of those things, those flat ones with the clamps on it that really suck. I don't know who makes them, but they were terrible, terrible editing blocks. And I always carried mine too, because I didn't want to work with those, but I had ended up working with it. There were probably like 37 edits in one song. Wow. Which is nothing compared to the Metallica edits, from what I understand, of 188 edits in one song that somebody counted when they were mixing. I guess it was a black album. Yeah. So I ended up spending the whole day editing. And that's what gave us the extra time so that we're alive. Once again, right place, right time. And a lot of luck. Man. And angels. I think there's multiple angels watching yeah. my ass. Well, I know that there's... We could be here for hours, and unfortunately, I don't do it like Andrew Sheps does, where, where we do <laughs> four-hour blocks and do part one and part two. You know, I think we had nine hours or something. Yeah, yeah. I love Andrew though, so I'm not gonna, no, I'm so not gonna, I, I, I won't give him shit. But yeah, yeah, I know that I've we've probably glossed over a ton of stuff. But if you look back, do you have any regrets, and do you have any moments that you are very appreciative of? I know there's many, but are there any key moments that? stick out. I regret that I didn't spend more time with my kids, oh. but I was, I was working. And I regret moving to Durango, Colorado from LA in 2003 when I should have stayed there. There was a lot of indie rock stuff going on that I could have worked with, but you know, you make decisions. 
I'm not a hip hop and rap guy. And it looked like it was going in that direction. And I got accosted by some gangbangers in the parking lot of Gelson's. And I just went, fuck it. I'm out of here. Huh? But it's, it's all good. Yeah. It's, it's kind of a regret, uh, but I really don't have any regrets. Honestly, I wouldn't, yeah. why should I change anything? I can't change anything. Right. As I've said many times, you can't change the past. You don't know what's going to happen in one minute. So you must live in the moment. Oh yes, please. Yeah. Any particular highlights of, of your time, you know, whether it's working with somebody or a moment that you really look back on and go, I'm really glad I did that. Oh boy. I'm really glad I did everything that I did do. Yeah. You know, honestly. Well, you, you've done some incredible work. I've been very lucky. And there's, there's a lot to go through. So audience, I'm going to put a link in the show notes to edstasium.com. You must go there and you've got to check it out and start going through the back catalog here, the discography of everything he's worked on. And I think you'll be shocked at how many records many of you own, but also just, I don't know, the quality of the work. There's one thing that I find really consistent is the clarity and the punch to a lot of the stuff. And I mean, even go to back to, I mean, we didn't even talk about this midnight train to Georgia. Woo. I mean, come on. That's, <laughs> I mean, if, if there's a career highlight, in my mind, that would be one of them. Quite a few people have mentioned that snare sound. And let me say one thing about that. I didn't know what the fuck I was doing. <laughs> I, didn't. I, I didn't know a condenser from a dynamic. Yeah. I didn't know a compressor. From, well, I didn't know a compressor from an EQ. But no, well, I, didn't, I didn't know. Well, Ed, it's been a pleasure talking with you. And I hope Thanks. at some point in the future we can, we can meet in person. I would love to sit and talk your arm off or let you talk my arm off and hear, hear more stories. So thank Thanks, you so Matt. much for, for taking the time to talk with me. Of course. My pleasure. You take care. Cheerio. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for, giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Ed Stasium here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. A reminder that your guest suggestions are welcome. Please head on over to workingclassaudio.com and fill out the guest suggestion form. And if you have a general question, always reach out either through the contact form or you can email me, matt at workingclassaudio.com. That's all for me today, though. I want to thank the crew, including Anne-Marie Plo and the editing, Cliff Truesdale on the Working Class Audio theme song, and the great Chuck Smith. Connect with me on LinkedIn, and until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss, 
you know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out. 